if the U.S. government, the media, the legal system, and the church can't keep democracy alive. It's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this. Thank you for joining us, everyone, on a state sale. I am Lori Lattimore-Volkman. I'm Brad Rayley. We have a special guest today, Dr. Ron Sider, a former professor of theology, holistic ministry, and public policy, as well as an author of over 45 books, and also one of the founding members of Evangelicals for Social Action back in early 70s. But today, he will join us to talk about his latest literary venture, as well as um, a very important topic, which is the spiritual danger of Donald Trump. 30 Evangelical Christians on Justice, Truth, and Moral Integrity. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Good to be with you. So, this has been quite a week, something we unfortunately keep having to say. But it began with continued protests across U.S. cities demanding racial justice after the death of George Floyd, particularly in relation to police brutality against African Americans, but really beyond that to also calling for an end to systemic racism in our democracy across so many different institutions. And then we saw our own U.S. president, who was angry over appearing weak after he chose to hide in his bunker during those protests outside the White House, decide to show strength by creating a photo op, talking about being the law and order president, while holding up a Bible in front of St. John's Episcopal Church. So as if that weren't offensive enough, and borderline First Amendment religious freedom violation, in order for Trump to walk to the church just blocks from the White House, he chose to clear out the peaceful protesters by firing rubber bullets that also emit a tear gas-like substance, which is a very clear violation of the First Amendment and the right to peaceful protest. So all of that is a very stark justification for your book title, The Spiritual Danger of Donald Trump. But of course, you and the other authors obviously wrote this before many of these things. So what was it that led you all to choose to write this book and to want to write this book now? Well, the writers are Republicans and Democrats and independents. Uh, we haven't all voted the same way. Um, some of the authors have never voted for a Democrat, for example. Uh, <laughs> but we all think that Jesus Christ should be Lord of every area of life, and that includes our politics. And we think that biblical norms about um, justice and truth and so on uh, should guide uh, all Christians, certainly evangelical Christians, who claim that Jesus is their Lord and the Bible is their authority. And we feel that as you measure what Donald Trump both does as a person, the kind of character he has, and the kind of uh, uh, decisions that he makes politically, that the result is this is simply not what biblical norms require. And, you know, we've been uh, saddened and grieved uh, at the way that 81% of white evangelicals um, voted for him and largely continue 
uh, to support him. It's crucial that you say white evangelicals because yes. the African <laughs> is evangelical and uh, uh, the Latino um, Protestant church is evangelical and the Asian American uh, <clears throat> Protestant church is evangelical. Uh, and um, they certainly didn't vote uh, even a majority for uh, Donald Trump. Overwhelmingly, the black church uh, did not vote for him. So uh, probably 40% of evangelicals in this country did not vote for Donald Trump, but 81% of white evangelicals did. And so we want to uh, plead with those brothers and sisters to say, please, uh, let's talk. Let's take a look at uh, what biblical norms are uh, and let's compare that with what Donald Trump uh, is doing um, and uh, let's have an honest dialogue. Yeah, and you do a wonderful job in the book of kind of presenting the biblical standard, the, the biblical advice, and contrast that with what we're seeing in our presidency as, as a way, I guess, to plead with, with these white evangelicals. But you also mentioned that the, the audience is a group that can be persuaded. So I'm curious, do you think 81% of white evangelicals will recognize that their beliefs are in direct contrast to what the Bible is teaching? Or are you trying to appeal to a middle-of-the-road evangelical who might be on the fence? I don't want to limit what the Holy Spirit will do uh, in everyone's heart and mind. But uh, to be honest, I don't expect a majority of the white evangelicals who continue to support him in spite of his racism and dishonesty and his dreadfully inadequate uh, leadership right now in response to the terrible uh, killing of African-Americans. Uh, but I think there's a significant evangelical center that really wants to be committed to Christ above all, wants to be genuinely committed to biblical standards. And it's that evangelical center that uh, I hope will uh, look and listen and pray um, and uh, be open to um, the Lord's guidance at that point. You know, it's it's simply true that um, Trump lies all the time, uh, that his um, personal ethical behavior has been terrible, that he has a atrocious uh, attitude toward women. Uh, one of the chapters is uh, written by um, um, Courtney, who is a conservative white evangelical southerner uh, who is famous for her writing uh, books and for her uh, conferences with women and she just lays out in uh, explicit detail the kinds of awful things that he said about women and says is that what you want your sons and daughters uh, to think about women we're trying to uh, plead with those people to look at the facts it's such a noble goal <laughs> I hope it works. In fact, that chapter on women really stuck out to me, too, for the very fact that you just mentioned, is that the writer is a conservative Christian woman in the South. And she even says that her audience that she usually deals with, conservative Christian women, and she does an outstanding job of laying out 50 or 60 comments from Donald Trump that show he cannot possibly be in line with what you would like to teach to your children and to your families. How do you get this message to those people? We've encouraged uh, all of the chapter writers to get multiple copies and share them with people in their network. Uh, I'm doing that, uh, doing a lot of radio and podcasts and uh, <laughs> had a call from NPR uh, uh, last night um, 
there's really some pretty exciting stuff that's developing with regard to the book. So I'm hopeful that um, um, it will be heard by a significant number of people. I guess my question is, do you think evangelicals are more receptive right now to hearing this message, to recognizing that their support of Donald Trump is toxic and antithetical to Christian teaching. Is there something about all of this turmoil that we're in that signifies maybe now they will listen and take it to heart? You know, the current setting with the uh, tragedy um, of African-Americans being killed and most recently the man in Minneapolis um, and, and now the response to that. Uh, you know, I don't justify for a moment uh, the looting and, uh, and uh, you know, attacking of police, but there's a, a deep, deep, long history of, uh, of racism and despair on the part of African-Americans that things will ever change. I did my most recent blog on white evangelicals racism and said this is our hour of decision uh, i've got a phenomenal response more than any other response to any blog i've done it's a time when we need our president to you know lead the country in uh, healing uh, in unity and instead he just uh, continues to be divisive uh, says incredible things, uh, attacks uh, Democrats, um, uh, picks up uh, a racist comment from the past saying if when they loot we shoot uh, and then this does this absurd um, trip uh, to a church uh, has the the police and uh, I believe the National Guard um, uh, pushing uh, demonstrators out of the way and then just goes to the church. He doesn't go to pray. Uh, he doesn't go to unite the people. He just goes to hold up the Bible, which is, I think, a blatant um, kind of uh, appeal to conservative white evangelicals to say, look, at, uh, uh, I'm, uh, I'm a good uh, Christian man and I'm trying to follow the Bible. Uh, that kind of lack of leadership is just tragic. And I find it utterly astounding that significant numbers of white evangelicals even defend his lack of uh, leadership in uniting the nation. Why do you think that is? Is it this contract they, that they've made where they just want to fight abortion and maybe even gay rights and they see a conservative person in the office as the only way to do that and they will kind of make this deal with the devil as long as that gets done, we'll put up with all these other things, even when it it really is almost blasphemous the way he holds up a Bible and stands in front of a church. What was your first reaction when you saw that stunt just for a photo op and not for any actual message related to unity? Certainly nothing that Jesus Christ would have done. Well, I think it's uh, it's just appalling. Uh, you know, Obama led us in singing Amazing Grace after the terrible tragedy of killing uh, of um, African-Americans by a white uh, racist. Uh, uh, our presidents like Lincoln, you know, uh, bring the nation to unity. Donald Trump just doesn't seem to have any ability to do that. Uh, you know, a lot of psychiatrists uh, think he's a classic case of narcissism. 
and has really no ability to empathize with others. Um, it's entirely clear that he just lies constantly. You know, <laughs> he spread the idea that Obama was not uh, born in the United States and therefore it was illegitimate. It was absolutely no evidence for that. And uh, Obama eventually um, showed his birth certificate. Uh, more recently, he's accused um, a former Republican a congressman of arranging the killing of uh, uh, a woman who worked for him. Again, absolutely zero evidence for that. That uh, former congressman is now a commentator on a TV network that he doesn't like. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> he tells lies about him. Whether or not you think there are some reasons to vote for him. Biblical Christians must be calling out uh, the lies and the racism, uh, the lack of concern for the poor, uh, the lack of concern for uh, care for creation. All of those things uh, are things that biblical Christians must be um, working at. I'm uh, conservative on some issues. I, I actually voted for George W. Bush twice, uh, as well as Barack Obama uh, twice. And, uh, and I care about uh, the sanctity of human life. Uh, I care about abortion. Uh, I, uh, I care about uh, traditional understanding of marriage. Uh, and uh, I care about religious freedom. But it's, I think, fundamentally mistaken to think that one or two issues trumps, forgive the expression, all the other <laughs> issues. There's racism and economic justice and uh, concern for climate change uh, and, and simply truth-telling. Uh, and uh, when our president constantly attacks the media, he's undermining one central part of democracy. So one has to think about all those issues. And in fact, you know, the, the National Association of Evangelicals is the largest network of evangelicals in the country. The NAE's uh, public policy document defines how they approach public policy. It's called for the health of the nation. And it says, and I quote, faithful evangelical civic engagement must have a biblically balanced agenda. And then they go on to mention about eight different issues. Uh, yes, there's a conservative statement on sanctity of human life and marriage. Uh, there's also a long statement on justice for the poor, on, on racism, on peacemaking, on care for creation, re religious freedom. All of those things are part of a biblically balanced agenda. And you can't just take one or two issues and make that all important. Where did we go wrong then in our evangelical world where we started focusing on just a couple issues, whether it's religious leaders or political operatives, <laughs> to focus so much on those two issues so a lot of Christians feel like I can't be Christian and vote for this Democrat because they're not against abortion. At some point, there's a divergence. There's the faith community that recognizes this broader big picture that Christians should be focusing on. And then there's this clearly very vocal and very powerful group that has been very successful in making only a couple issues almost the only thing people vote on when they go to the ballot box. Now, in my lifetime, uh, very good Christian friends have uh, uh, insisted that the overwhelming public policy issue is global poverty, or the nuclear arms race, uh, or the family, or the, uh, abortion and the sanctity of human life, and the list goes on. And I have said, I care about all of those things, but it seems to me 
that a Christian thinking about politics should ask, what does the Bible say that God cares about? And when you ask that question, it becomes clear very quickly that God cares about the sanctity of human life and economic justice, justice for the poor. God cares about marriage and God cares about uh, uh, ending racism. God cares about sexual integrity and about uh, care for creation and freedom and so on. Uh, and so if we want to let God be our guide, we need to care about all the things that God cares about. You know, how did it happen? That's a long, complex um, uh, answer that would be needed by a good historian uh, in the book. Randall Bomber um, has a chapter on that that helps one understand. Good. I'm so glad you brought that up because I did want to ask about it. And so let's just, and I'm going to read to you because I thought he, he points this out so nicely. The enthusiastic, uncritical embrace of President Trump by white evangelicals is among the most mind-blowing developments of the Trump era. How can a group that for decades, and especially during the Bill Clinton presidency, insisted that character counts and that personal integrity is an essential component of presidential leadership, not only turn a blind eye to the ethical and moral transgressions of Donald Trump, but also constantly defend him? Why are those who have been on the vanguard of family values so eager to give a man with a sordid personal and sexual history a mulligan? Many white evangelical Christians, then, are deeply fearful of what a Trump loss would mean for America, American culture, and American Christianity. If a Democrat is elected president, they believe it might all come crashing down around us. How do we overcome that now when that's been so embedded in this for, for decades? To, to appealing to exactly as you say, what does God care about? God cares about a whole lot of things that, you know, that are that are com you know competing interests sometimes in our political world, but but there's a lot of things that we are allowing to happen right now, especially in the last three years, that are absolutely 100% against what biblical teaching and Christian teaching and Jesus would say the racism, the lack of care for the poor and not taking care of humanity, not taking care of our earth. I mean, it's, it goes on and on. It's like a really long list of abuses. I feel sometimes overwhelmed with thinking there's any way to talk to that 81%. I think the National Association of Evangelicals document is a, is a good um, thing to um, point to. I think there's an evangelical center. I would call it the National Association of Evangelicals, the Christian colleges and universities, um, uh, evangelical seminaries, um, organizations like InterVarsity, Christian Christianity Today. That evangelical center, I think, really seeks to have a biblical balance. And I think the NAE's document uh, is a great thing to use and say, here, this is what um, evangelical leadership um, thinks uh, is a summary of what uh, Christians ought to be engaged in politically. Of course it's true. In any political election, you've got two imperfect, or maybe three, uh, <laughs> candidates. I don't think that uh, ever it's the case that um, one political candidate represents everything that um, I support. But you have to look at the whole uh, set of policies and things that you think the person will likely do, as well as their character, uh, and say, on balance, which is closer to what... Uh, is um, a biblical agenda and what God would want. That's always a tough decision. Um, good Christians, um, you know, uh, can disagree. It ought to be precisely Christians 
who can talk about that. You know, the, the country is dreadfully um, deadlocked, uh, very little honest debate in Washington. We're not dealing with major decisions, uh, issues that we need to deal with because of that deadlock. And what I've been saying in my blogs and, and elsewhere is that um, couldn't Christians in the churches model the kind of honest dialogue? So I say, okay, why doesn't an evangelical pastor say, I'm going to organize a political study group in the next few months, uh, and I'm going to have Democrats and Republicans and independents in that study group. We're going to try to um, start with a normative biblical vision and then try to get the facts straight on a whole variety of issues in that discussion group. Shouldn't the church be the best place where we can really listen to each other across genuine differences and listen to each other point out why on biblical grounds they think this way and why in light of the facts, economic, uh, political, scientific, and so on, they think this way? If the church would really do that in a major way, we would provide a model that the larger society desperately needs. I'm really glad you brought that up. We, we kind of talked about this a little bit a few minutes ago with the religious center, but do you think that the religious center will take up this torch? Will they recognize what leadership they can provide in having these kinds of conversations, particularly now, particularly when we have just a few months before the presidential election and the and recognizing the dire need to talk about the danger of Donald Trump, the spiritual danger of this man being president another four years? I would hope so. I don't know. I haven't yet seen it. Uh, I, I was told that Pat Robertson actually said something uh, critical of that action recently, but I have to check that out. Uh, but Franklin Graham, on the other hand, um, it's a moment of decision for... Uh, white evangelicals. Uh, you know, the, the truth is that, I mean, the, the burning issue right now is racism in our police departments and beyond that, uh, right. you know, in our public school systems, you know, we have huge, largely segregated uh, uh, city uh, public schools that don't get as much funding for child as largely white, uh, very successful urban, uh, suburban school districts. Um, uh, there's been a long history, um, and we must deal with it. And, and I say to white evangelicals, look at, we've been not just silent, we've been on the wrong side. Uh, it was white evangelicals, you know, that um, participated in, uh, right after the Emancipation Proclamation, after 20 years of African Americans making a lot of progress, uh, you know, all that was turned around as uh, white people. Uh, with a lot of white evangelicals and uh, passing laws and doing things illegally that just crushed the African-American community. We had a hundred years of lynchings by, uh, by Christians, uh, including white evangelicals. Uh, and then when uh, the Supreme Court ended separate but equal in the public school system, you know, white evangelicals formed Christian academies, in quotes, so <laughs> that their kids didn't have to go to school with African-American kids. Uh, and when Martin Luther King was marching, uh, some Jewish leaders and mainline Protestant people courageously joined him. The white evangelical community was almost entirely silent or worse. Jerry Falwell said that Martin Luther King had no right uh, doing this kind of political stuff. He should be preaching the gospel. He obviously changed his mind a little bit later. My own seminary 
was formed, uh, I think, in 1926. Uh, I've taught there for 41 years. I'm now retired. Uh, and it was formed as an evangelical response to theological liberalism. But we would not allow African-American male students to stay overnight, sleep overnight on campus. And when uh, we had to decide what to do uh, with our swimming pool, integrate it, we decided to close it down instead of integrate it. So the list of white evangelical racism goes on and on. And we simply must at this moment say we've sinned, we are going to repent, and we're not just going to do a superficial thing. We're going to insist that we change the structures in our society that contribute to racism. Do you believe that there's a little bit of an onus on Christians to lead that conversation and lead that change, white evangelical Christians in particular? Absolutely. If we honestly look at our history, we have to say we have sinned. we must repent. Uh, but then repentance doesn't mean just a, a tear. It, it means turning around and it means action. Uh, and that means insisting on legislation that ends the kind of police brutality that um, is now so painfully clear. It's been clear for a long, long time, uh, but um, it's now in the news in a way that uh, it isn't always. And then we must resolve that we're going to provide quality education for all of our children, not just white suburban kids. We must um, insist on health care for everybody. That especially affects lower income African Americans. You know, the stats are that uh, the average white white family is thir- has 13 times as much wealth as the average black family. So they don't have the kind of cushion for this kind of crisis we're in with COVID-19. Um, and uh, we must change all kinds of things so that there's genuine opportunity for African-Americans and um, Hispanic folk, um, everybody. I'm struck by your belief in that middle, that evangelical middle, and I, I hope it's there. I, I see I see a lot of the people you're talking about, and I'm curious your thought on this. There's a group in this white evangelical world that is angry that they have been, they perceive that they are losing space in the public square. McKay Coppins, I think, wrote this on uh, the explanation for those who actually embrace Trump's photo op. And the line was, uh, most white conservative Christians don't want piety from this president, they want power. So I'm curious your thoughts on that concern of especially white evangelical Christians who believe that somehow uh, being challenged on that kind of, whether it was prayer in schools or whether it was, uh, you know, praying in front of uh, having Christians all on their community um, councils and all that, um, how much of that is simply a, a desire to have power and to have their religion, not just free, but prioritized? If we want power more than justice, we're not just radically unbiblical. I think we're finally being uh, idolatrous. Uh, Biblical people ought to be pleading for the things that the Bible says God uh, cares about. Uh, I think that it's probably true that a significant number of white evangelicals um, have chosen 
power rather than justice. Um, you know, they say uh, we don't want a pastor in chief. Uh, we want um, somebody who will, uh, uh, you know, fight for us. Yeah, and one of the chapters of the book, in in effect, uh, you know, talks about one part of this. Um, the professor from Baylor, um, who writes a chapter, uh, has written a whole bunch of books on what he calls um, Christophobia. Uh, and he points out that there is a section of the liberal left secular uh, world in the US that really, um, maybe it's a little too far to say they hate Christianity, uh, but they certainly are very prejudiced against it. Uh, and he has written books that talk about that. Uh, and I think it's true that one part of the white evangelical support for Trump is a reaction to that. But you don't react to something that's wrong by an equally or worse misguided response <laughs> the other way. Uh, you respond to that kind of Christophobia. I mean, there are certainly liberal secular folk right now who really want to take away fundamental uh, religious rights of conservative people uh, if they don't buy their belief that um, uh, gay marriage is fine. Uh, you know, that's that's a, a violation of freedom. It's a violation of the First Amendment. Uh, and Christians uh, are rightly, conservative Christians are rightly concerned with religious freedom in this context because of that set of issues. But the way to respond to that is to um, say to uh, uh, people who think gay marriage is fine, uh, whether Christians or others, and there are good Christians who think that's the case, to say, uh, okay, we can disagree on that. Uh, let's agree that everybody has uh, religious and political freedom. Uh, let's have legislation that, in fact, federal legislation that um, protects the civil rights of LGBTQ people, and in the same legislation, protects the rights of religious freedom who people who think that uh, marriage should be between a man and a woman. There's a good way to respond uh, to that uh, hostility to even Christian faith itself, uh, and the way we're doing it is not the way. You know, the massive white evangelical support for Trump, in spite of his immoral character and his racism and so on, has fundamentally undermined at least evangelical uh, Christianity. Many of our young people are just turning away in disgust and saying, if that's what evangelical means, forget it, I'm, I'm gone. And tragically, a number are even turning away from Christianity itself. And certainly in the larger culture, there's been uh, a disgust with uh, Christianity because of this white evangelical support of a man who just is immoral in all kinds of ways. Especially when we, when we talk about race, because white evangelicals, as you mentioned, have been not just silent, but also enabling to be divided. Is it important in any way to try to bring faith groups together? Because, you know, we really are very segregated in the way we worship as well. well and the Evangelical Center is making some progress. You know, the... Um, uh, at the center of the leadership of the National Association of Evangelicals, the largest evangelical network in the country. Uh, the president is now an Asian American. Uh, the um, chair of the board is an African American pastor. And the vice chair of the board is um, an evangelical woman, uh, Joanne Lyon. I mean, that's 
fundamental change. The head of InterVarsity Fellowship uh, is an Asian American. Uh, uh, there are real changes um, in that white evangelical center that um, I think are hopeful signs. But as I said, we'll see. In the beginning of the book, you, you mentioned that you, you published this with great sadness, but persistent hope. You know, like Brad, I'm probably a little more cynical, and I hope you are right. What gives you hope that this evangelical center, that reasonable voices, that just this country, you know, religious or not, is going to be able to turn away the disease and the poison that Trump has brought upon our society, you know, our democracy, as well as our spirituality? You know, I've been a part of that evangelical world um, for <laughs> about 60 years. <laughs> Even longer, I met my wife uh, in an university prayer meeting, um, you know, in high school. You know, I've written for Christianity Today um, for decades. University published my books. Um, uh, I've taught at an evangelical college and seminary, uh, you know, all my life. The list goes on and on. And I know those people. I know that many, many of those people, they're people who really love Jesus. They really want to be obedient. Now, all of our lives are complex. We have to make tough decisions. But I think they, they long to um, follow Jesus more than anything else. Um, I hope that's true. Um, and I, uh, I will give um, Franklin Graham and, and all the others there uh, the benefit of the doubt. I, I hope that's true of them. Uh, I, I, I want to believe that. I, I pray almost daily uh, for them. Um, I pray for the president um, uh, almost daily, asking the Lord to make him the kind of person that the Lord wants him to be <laughs> and to support the kinds of policies that the Lord wants him to um, support. Uh, but I'm certain that there's a big block of um, centrist evangelical leaders, um, not just white, but, but certainly a vast majority of them are white, that really are struggling and praying, uh, asking God to show them what to do. One of my chapters right. in the book, Will the White Evangelical Standard Remain Silent Again in 2020? Do you feel like it's boiling over a little bit? They sort of recognize, I'm going to have to actually make a little bit more of a political stand or speak out a little bit more this time around because the stakes are so high. We'll see. <laughs> My first two reporting jobs involved working with state newspapers under the Southern Baptist Convention in the 90s at the time a fundamentalist takeover was coming to fruition. It was a real struggle for me to watch churches and leaders talk about biblical principles and Christian values on Sunday but then engage in very anti-Christian behavior outside of the church. And I'm not even talking about the obvious stuff like sexual abuse or embezzling money, but more a conscious effort to seize power and, and money and manipulate their biblical messages to fit a political agenda. And I could see how subtle it was and how so many faithful Christians bought into an idea that they couldn't be good believers if they voted for a Democrat because the Democrat wasn't speaking out against abortion. Yet the Republican, maybe, who claimed to be pro-life didn't want to help the poor with their lives, didn't want to help people of color with their lives, frankly, didn't even want, they didn't want to help the women with their lives. 
But these actions by these white men were largely ignored and the rhetoric became a rally cry for evangelicals. And I feel like it has really influenced in such a negative way generations of Christian believers. You know, I think part of the problem is that uh, we have in the evangelical world so often reduced Christian faith and reduced the gospel just to forgiveness of sins. The only reason Jesus came was to die for our sins. Uh, and the core of the gospel is just that uh, our sins are forgiven so we can go to heaven when we die. Now, if that's all the gospel is, it's a one-way ticket to heaven, and we can live like hell till we get there. <laughs> Jesus did not define the gospel just as forgiveness of sins. His gospel was the good news of the kingdom. And in fact, at the center of the good news of the kingdom was the fact that God forgives sinners. But there's an equally important second part of the gospel, and that is that the, the time predicted by the prophets when there would be peace and justice and the poor would be cared for, would there be a new social order, is actually breaking in, and that's part of Jesus' gospel of the kingdom. And so you can't separate your social economic life and your political life from being Christian. But if the gospel is just forgiveness of sins, then you can somehow accept the gospel and it doesn't affect the rest of your life, your business life or your politics um, or whatever. Uh, and that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the Bible. It's a, a failure to understand what Jesus said is the center of his gospel, namely the good news of the kingdom. So. Are you optimistic that we can appeal to Christians around the country of this second part of the gospel, this message of the good news, and remind them of all the things that are important, particularly when, when looking at who our country's leaders might be? I mean, it's hope, not <laughs> optimism. I don't know what's going to happen. But I do uh, think that, um, you know, it's younger people like yourself. <laughs> that um, uh, are called to to leadership. Uh, I hope and pray for um, a whole new generation of young biblical Christians. Uh, I still think the word evangelical is a good label to use, but um, what I care about is um, orthodox theology and a, and a passion to follow the biblical Christ, no matter where that leads. And uh, please, God, may... Um, uh, a whole younger generation of, uh, of teenagers and people in their 20s and 30s uh, and 40s um, show us uh, that they'll follow Jesus no matter what the rest of the culture does. I'm, I'm not sure I share your optimism, but I, uh, but I hope, as Lori said, I hope you're right because uh, um, I, I too see so many good people um, in these churches who I think have um, decided to look the other way and, and, um, and not act. And I'm hoping that they will. And, um, I think there's some actual, some polling data that suggests that actually some of that support is slowly, uh, being eroded away. And so we can hope that that will continue. And, and so I applaud, I applaud you for sticking the fight and, and continue to push for, for this kind of, uh, social action. So thank you. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you and a wonderful conversation an enlightening conversation. Before we let you go, please tell our listeners 
how they can buy your book and where they can find your blog? If they go to uh, www.withandstock.com, that's W-I-P-F-A-N-D-S-T-O-C-K, and use the code DANGER40, they can get a 40% uh, discount on the book. It's also available at uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble uh, uh, and uh, so on. And I also do a blog uh, at ronsiderblog.substack.com and uh, would love to have people uh, join me on my blog. And I can say it's a very good blog and a very good book. And I would encourage everyone to check out the book and definitely subscribe to the blog. Thank you for that. Thank you for writing your book. And mostly thank you for joining us today on our podcast. Glad to be with you. Thank you. We really do appreciate you joining us. It was very enlightening. It's a topic I love to talk about. I love to debate. It's a tricky one. If we have more Ron Siders out there speaking out, we're going to be okay. You know, my plea to you uh, uh, is don't abandon Jesus because so many of his disciples uh, are unfaithful. I'm inspired by your uh, work ethic and your productivity. And I, um, and I think that maybe I should try to be a little bit more productive. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't meaning to put a guilt trip on you. <laughs> that was awesome. I hope you all enjoyed it. Dr. Sider has a lot of great insight and truly please check out his book and his blog. Well worth your time. Brad and I are going to follow up with a little conversation about our, I won't say our optimism, our hope. Hopefully we have some hope. <laughs> we'll see who, we'll see whose pessimism wins out, whose optimism wins out. Enjoy. Stick around. The sad state of affairs that we're dealing with tonight in the nation's capital, Anderson, is that the, we, we have now witnessed the president of the United States operating outside the bounds of U.S. law and the tradition of what we know to be our democracy, which is the United States government does not use the military against civilians in this country unless there's a damn good reason. And this just wasn't a damn good reason. And well, also, all we ended up with was what the, the president of the United States looking like a wannabe dictator Right. Uh, so he could walk over to, over to a church and right. pretend to be concerned about the church. This was bad reality tel television. This wasn't even good reality television. That was a clip from CNN's Jim Acosta talking with Anderson Cooper after Donald Trump's photo op in which the White House used tear gas to clear out protesters so Trump could stand in front of a church. As Jim Acosta said, that was bad reality TV. So, Brad, we watch things like that almost every day with this president, though I'd argue this might be a new low. But when we contrast that with the words from Ron Sider, where he's hopeful Christians in the political center will rise up and be counted and remind their fellow believers that their moral and Christian responsibility should steer them away from this man as president, do you have hope? Do you think this can happen? You know, I still go back to that Trump has revealed much like the pandemic, Trump has revealed more than he's actually caused. There's more to this, you know, evangelical uh, appreciation for his cruelty than I think any of us really want to face. I mean, that's because that's just, that's bleak. And especially for somebody 
like Ron, who is, uh, is so optimistic and, you know, and I, and I appreciate that. I, that, that's, I want to be more optimistic. I'm just not sure I have it, have it in me. It was interesting though. He said it's hope, not optimism. Like I'm actually not yeah. sure he would say he's optimistic. He's just hoping the people that he sees and knows have a severe dislike for how he's led the country. When you read this book, and you, I think you and I would disagree with part of this, but there's a consistent message where they, you know, these writers will say, even though there are some reasons you would, I can see you would support Trump. And I think we can surmise a lot of that is the, you know, the abortion issue and the sanctity of marriage issue. Even though there would be those things, you cannot overlook this other. And this other is so much against our biblical teaching and our Christian teaching. And mm. it's not just, it's not just what I as a, a faithful person am telling you. It is it is in this Bible verse right here. And there are a lot of Bible verses mm. in here to contradict what Trump has said or what some of these religious leaders have said. And so it's it's the kind of book that really could have an impact on the people in the middle. You know, it's interesting. I One of the things I keep thinking about, and we've talked about this before, is that so many of the people, when they make their decision to vote, it's not based on um, deep research. It's not actually reading deeply on multiple sources. It's not thinking about this. It's just sort of a, a, a feeling. I mean, they start from the assumption that being conservative is better than being liberal. And they've been Republican their entire life. And they assume that that's always going to be better than the Democrats. I do think this last week and the pandemic have the way of getting in your face in the way that you can't you can't ignore it. There are a whole bunch of these people that could ignore impeachment, they could ignore Ukraine, they could ignore even the Mueller investigation, they could ignore all that stuff because it was just politics, it was just people fighting, all that kind of stuff. But when, you know, people are dying around them from a pandemic and then they see you know, uh, police uh, wading into, you know, hitting protesters. I'm hopeful, if nothing else, that for some of these people, just the fatigue of the chaos, that they will say, I'm not, I can't support this if, if for no other reason. But I, I, I don't know. We'll know. see, as Ron said, we will see. I know. Um, I also really like the distinction Ron makes among white evangelicals between the evangelical center and the evangelical right. Because those in the right-wing faction are just hopeless. But there are many Christians, and I would I'd put myself and my family in this category, who see biblical teaching actually as justification for providing health care, spending money to educate everyone equally, offering food stamps to help the poor, prosecuting criminals but doing it fairly and justly, and, and basically generally making governing decisions based upon upholding humanity not on keeping the white man in power. Unfortunately, the louder group has been that right-wing faction uh, that cares more about power than about compassion. And that 81% who continue to support a president displaying, and I love Ron's word here, absolutely dreadful leadership. I do think a significant number in that percentage are just blind followers listening to toxic religious leaders like Franklin Graham and Al Mohler, Pat Robertson. But many of that group, and I'd probably disagree with Ron a little here, do know exactly how they are manipulating the faith message and manipulating believers to their political bent and to keep themselves in power and prominence. 
And they're doing it so blatantly by continually justifying a man who has zero compassion, zero concern for anyone, really, much less people of color, people in poverty, immigrants, people with some disability, or people of wealth and power who just don't bow to him. And I think Ron is spot on when he calls it nothing short of idolatry. So I think we have to keep reminding ourselves to focus on energizing that evangelical center, and not just metaphorically, but, you know, <laughs> directly from the pulpit, say, Jesus Christ would not have condoned beating a protester. He would not have stood for a cop choking a black man to death, even a man possibly guilty of a crime. He would not stand for a leader who lies and cheats and steals and berates and mocks and blasphemes. He just, he wouldn't. Every single thing in the New Testament shows us he would not do that. Also, I'm pretty damn sure Jesus would have been protesting <laughs> had he been there. Somebody from here in Fort Collins posted something, this litany of just falsehoods about, about um, Trump, you know, that he speaks his mind, that he speaks the truth, that he's, yeah. he's willing to fight, yeah. all these kinds of things. And um, I unfriended her and I was bruised uh, for days after that. And it's because in the back of my brain somewhere, there's still this expectation that that church setting that I was raised in um, is better than this. And even though I know, and you shake your head every time I say this, <laughs> but I mean, because I know the reality. I mean, the, 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 the past is the best predictor of future behavior. They've, they've demonstrated that all this way through. And yet there's still this ability to just sort of feel like I just got punched in the stomach, which I know is something, you know, I, I know, shouldn't, I, I shouldn't, I, I feel like, I feel like, uh, I'm Charlie, I'm Charlie Brown and Lucy in the football every damn time. I'm, I keep like, no, she's going to hold the football for me this time. I swear to God. And then, you know, there I go. <laughs> it's true. My husband always says, you know, the reason people get angry is because reality doesn't meet expectation and you keep expecting people to be better. <laughs> like, I know. <laughs> Isn't that what you keep lecturing me about too? <laughs> Well, I know, because I know those people for sure are not changing. Yeah. You know, that is how I felt a little bit when I was working in the denominational press. And I, I met so many good people in that experience, but I also saw so much blasphemy, I mean, honestly, to, you know, and it was, and it was depressing to think, because I watch, at, you know, in the micro level, people are doing good things. At the macro level, and on a nationwide level, they were doing awful things. You know, and it's watching this cult sort of unfold and feeling helpless. And that's how I feel every day with Trump. All this stuff is wrong, and it's so obviously wrong, and the right people speak out, but because we don't have a Senate with any backbone, as we have a Supreme Court with no moral integrity, because we have a president who's got no moral integrity and also is a complete dumbass, we're stuck. There's a great article by Ezra Klein kind of comparing now to, to back then. And he, he starts it off saying, people always ask me, is this the worst time in America? And he says, I always say it was way worse. It was way worse. But the difference actually is in the 60s, there was a framework within our government to support and to prevent it from crumbling. And right now, we don't have that. So even though things aren't worse, 
the effect is going to be worse. The impact is going to be worse. Yeah. Comparisons to 1968 have been flying around and they're, they're good ones because, you know, riots and divisiveness uh, among the left. I mean, you know, you had a lot of people who refused to vote for Humphrey because he had some complicity in the Vietnam War. I will say that the one of the differences that works in our favor, I agree with Ezra Klein uh, from what you're saying in terms of that the government framework is is badly frayed right now because of that lack of accountability and everything else. One of the things we do have in our favor is that the the comparisons to, you know, Nixon switched to law and order in 1968. That was his kind of claim to fame. But what he able was able to do was actually have the facade of actually reaching out to the other side and also this kind of stability that what he offered was was um, a calm. It was law and order that would be control, but it would also be we would get past all of this, this chaos and what Trump lacks he lacks all of that ability he doesn't you know he's not smart enough to understand any of that and so what he does is just add chaos to the chaos and while i'm saying that that sounds like this is much worse but the good news is i think is that there are more white allies i think who are watching all the killings and are horrified um a lot of suburban housewives are leaving Trump behind, as are the el- a lot of older people because of his response to the pandemic. Um, the polling data I have seen is that people outside of you know Robert Jefferson and and, um, and Franklin Graham were not impressed with his little photo op. Uh, you know, so there there's an erosion here. I think it'll. I don't well, think it'll be quite that easy. <laughs> but no, no, I agree. Every single time the PR machine comes in. People like you and I who, who read good sources and pay attention know the truth. If you don't do that, you see yeah. one of two things. You either see only Trump, you see the spin, so then you you're buy into that, or you just see, you know, he says one thing, the news says another, he says another, it's all too confusing, nobody, you know, all politics is bad. After every crisis that he kind of has been able to weasel out of or just get past, I think, well, we're screwed. <laughs> like, we, we are not going to gonna end up with this guy for four more years. One of the, the things that, that gives me a little bit of hope is, you know, McSally is way underwater in Arizona. I yeah. mean, she's hugely unpopular in areas that Trump won easily. Biden is actually leading in Arizona. I know it's early. Joni Ernst isn't exactly a rock solid. I mean, she may get challenged in Iowa. North Carolina with Phyllis, who I think is is in danger. And then your own Lindsey Graham. He's He's probably in better shape than several of those that you've mentioned. He's not in one of the the true swing states or swing races. But Right. He's struggling, partly because he's attached himself to Trump so much. And the African-Americans in South Carolina really like Biden. Because right. Biden yeah. will be on the ticket, that will turn out a lot of African-Americans for the election. That really helps the Democratic challenger, not just right. because he's the Democratic challenger, but also because he is a great African-American leader. He truly comes from South Carolina and grew up knowing a lot of the discrepancy and a lot of the discrimination. And so he can speak to that. So I think that will help Jamie Harrison um, a lot. I hope so. This is the thing I've been holding on to. And like you, every time it hasn't happened. And so I'm, but I'm kind of hopeful yeah. is that if 
I'm not, I have no longer, I have any question that Mitch McConnell or any of these people have any concern about the country, but they do care about their own power. I mean, we've already heard ripple effects where Senate staffers telling uh, people in difficult races not to, you know, not to cling to Trump, yeah. giving them essentially permission, again, not out of duty to us, but out of the self-preservation that some of these people, I'm, we'll see. I mean, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I keep hoping, but it hasn't happened. That's good. I always I hear those stories of Mitch McConnell, and all it does is make me worry that they'll just do even more to cheat. <laughs> yeah. No. I. I. I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's it it is it is a stunning situation we're in. But the one thing I can count on, Kevin Cruz always says, you know, um, he says we need to remember these are not very bright people. Like the chaos is not nearly as planned as people like to give him credit for. It's just because all he cares about is himself. And so it's what I'm going to do at this minute. That That is, honestly, I keep going back to, he's going to stick his foot in it every damn time. Every time, every time he has a chance, he's going to. If we can survive long enough, I honestly see, I see the erosion of, and that's why he did the photo op, by the way. He sees the erosion too, because his internal polling is showing that even in the white evangelical world, um, his numbers are slipping. They're not plummeting. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But you know, given the given this small part of American populace that the uh, this white evangelical block makes, he needs that eighty percent of that to make up for the fact that he's alienating women in suburban Philadelphia. He's alienating uh, retired people in Florida by saying well, we all have to die someday, you know, that kind of thing. And so, you know, there's, yeah, I, I think, I think one of the things we can see all of this kind of, you know, waving the Bible and everything is, is he's, he's scared. I think uh, oddly enough for somebody who's deeply cynical about uh, the Christian conservative world, um, I see in some of them such a need to be um, well-intentioned and, there is that component there of people who are not terribly politically connected who yet are pulled in because, as we know, depending on where they are, they, they're going to have more uh, gay and lesbian friends. They're going to have more friends of color. They're going, to, yeah. they're going to have conversations with people who are saying, yeah, you know what? Uh, I've had cops pull a gun on me. That's what I cling to is that, that some of those younger conservatives who are not philosophically really can or not not politically connected are connected to people and i'm yeah. hoping that they're yeah. going to be listening to the people around them that's that's yeah yeah that's the only optimism i can find really but <laughs> that's good optimism, that help? Though. well that's it for today thanks again so much for joining us i'm Lori Lattimore volkman with brad Rayleigh. this is a state sale please join us again it's time for a state sale a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this.